The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Hello and welcome back to Francis Watch, sponsored by Novus Ordo Watch. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me, as always, is His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Your Excellency, thank you for joining us. Nice to be here again. As always, we are missing Father Anthony Cicada. Father Cicada continues to convalesce. He is doing well, and we'll have more updates for him, possibly at the end of the episode. Your Excellency, it's been, as usual, three months since our last episode, and in a certain sense, we are grateful because coronavirus even kept Francis from saying too much because he couldn't go out and spread his blather, but he did man- he did manage to say a few things, and-, and more interestingly, I think, for our listeners in this episode, the story is actually more about what some of the clerics around Francis have been saying. But our first item has to do with COVID itself, and Francis has exhorted all religions to pray for the end of coronavirus. This text, as all of our text always comes from, from Novus Ordo Watch, but this was on Thursday, May the 14th. The text reads, Dear fellow believers in God, the All-Creator, our brothers and sisters in humanity everywhere, Our world is facing a great danger that threatens the lives of millions of people around the world due to the growing spread of the coronavirus pandemic. While we reaffirm the role of medicine and scientific research in fighting this pandemic, we should not forget to seek refuge in God, the All-Creator, as we face such a severe crisis. Therefore, we call on all peoples around the world to do good deeds, observe, fast, pray, and make devout supplications to God Almighty to end this pandemic each one from wherever they are and according to the teachings of their religion, faith, or sect, should implore God to lift this pandemic off us and the entire world, to rescue us all from this adversity, to inspire scientists to find a cure that can turn back this disease, and to save the whole world from the health, economic, and human repercussions of this serious pandemic. As part of its efforts to realize the objectives of the document on human fraternity, The Higher Committee of Human Fraternity suggests announcing Thursday, May the 14th, 2020, a day for fasting, prayers, and supplications for the good of all humanity. As such, the committee invites all religious leaders and peoples around the world to respond to this call for humanity and together beseech God Almighty to safeguard the entire world. Could go on, Your Excellency, but my stomach has has taken its limit. Mm -hmm. People will say, well, Your Excellency, look, he's calling for fast and good deeds, and making devout supplications to God Almighty. Yeah, there is only one God. This is the, you know, the, the catch here. It would not be wrong to tell people who are non-Catholics to pray to God, meaning to pray to the true God. Anyone can pray. You should, you know, if you, if you pray, if you're a non-Catholic and you pray to know to tr- the truth, you're praying implicitly to the true God. The killer is, though, according to the teachings of their religion, faith, or sect, 
That's, that's the, the poison in this whole thing, and that is that you can pray to your false gods for all of these things, and you can fast and would do all of these other religious things to your false gods. And this is, you know, this is the, the, the decree on ecumenism. You know, these are means of salvation and that, that there is not merely one true religion, the Catholic religion, and not one true God that God is what you make him, and God is revealing to you in a different way what he is from the way he's revealing it to us. And so we can't condemn each other about the, the God that we worship and so forth and so on, and, and you know, ad infinitum and ad nauseam, which we've heard, uh, you know, for all of these 50-some years since Vatican II. But, it, you know, it really is just another exercise in that sort of... Uh, crazy thinking. We could say that he's consistent, Your Excellency. He is consistent, yes. I think that, you know, we could say that. That's something positive we could say. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you get all of this uh, bomb fog, fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man. In other words, that God exists for making the earth a better place for humanity and for human fraternity. You know, it's all Masonic and naturalistic. Uh, as I've always said, I don't think the man believes in God. I, I think God is, is brought out the way the Masons bring out God once in a while. You know, that you need, you know, God one, you know, occasionally. Like you might need uh, an ashtray or, a, you know, something that, that is useful. You know, something that fits into the system and elevates the whole thing a little bit. I think he's a communist. I think he's an atheist, a communist, and like all communists, uh, profess this betterment of humanity as their god. They don't do anything for the betterment of humanity. Ask the people in Cuba, and ask the people in Venezuela, and ask the Eastern Europeans who are still reeling from the decades of communism that they lived under. They don't do anything for it. What they do is they enhance the condition of a tiny oligarchy an aristocracy that runs socialism and communism. That's what they, that's their, their big contribution to humanity. It's this phrase, the higher committee of human fraternity. <laughs> it should set off a, a red light that sounds, sounds straight out yeah. of the committee of public safety <laughs> yeah. from the revolution. Yeah. And this strange, the all creator, I think, again, as you say, is appealing to this pantheistic notion of God. So what is the all creator? That's not a, a title that we tend to use when we're addressing our Lord. No, it, it's, it's all uh, vocabulary that is pantheistic, pre-Masonic, you know, generic God kind of thing. Uh, it's not Catholic, and not in any remote way, the Catholic religion. He, he belongs to another religion. He's one of the, the he, has, he belongs to a sect. <laughs> Indeed. And apparently in this sect, you make jokes about the afterlife and maybe seeing people in hell. As we know, Francis loves these phone calls uh, with, with people. And then he also, indeed, uh, we think about the, the quote about the millstone, Your Excellency, about leading these young ones astray. You covered in Francis Watch some years ago, it feels like now, the boy who went to him and said, you know, where is my dad? And says, oh, he was a, he was a good man in Italian. And so here's this uh, autistic child at the uh, end of April was on a phone call with Francis. And the, the quote is, well, here's the text. And again, this is from a Nova Sorda watch story. Pope Francis closed the call, offering the family his blessing and asking for prayer, but not before making a small joke with Barufi. Barufi is the autistic child. 
who told him that we pray a lot for you, but you don't need it. You are already a saint. Justine, he laughed, this is Bergoglio, and said, who knows, maybe we'll see each other in hell. To which Barufi said, I think for you, no, but us perhaps, we're a little bit mean with everyone in this situation. You know, Your Excellency, it just, <laughs> if I, I think recently I've been reading the book by Father Shoup on purgatory, and I, I always remember that you told me once that whenever you read stories about the saints, like some of your hair falls out as you think about what, they, what they've done. Mm-hmm. And as you can see from your hair, you've been doing a lot of reading about the saints over the years. So, so you look at purgatory, and I'm reading these stories of these religious, and uh, they would do things like they didn't follow some rule regarding property in their order, and they're burning in this terrible level of purgatory. And so I've, I've had this on my mind recently, and then I come across this quote, and I think, maybe we'll see each other in hell. It's just... We've seen this before with Bergoglio. He has the ability to surprise us over and over and over. But uh, what a thing to joke about. He denies hell. He says, if you're bad, you're exterminated. You're, you're, you're eliminated. Uh, you know, if you're one of the few people that are really, really bad, uh, you, you just go out of existence. He, he denies hell. So, I mean, this is just a, a, a stupid joke. He doesn't really believe in hell. And, and he's remember years ago he said that you know that that you get annihilated. Uh, so that's one more heresy just to put on his list. But uh, so this is this is a a stupid remark. Uh, I mean, you know, coming from a supposed holy father, we'll see each other in hell. You know, I mean, he's got uh, you know coming from the 1930s and being raised in a pious Catholic family. Uh, I think he's got to wonder about it though. He's been taught all of those things as a child, and you wonder, I mean, it's, it's a very odd thing to say. You wonder if he uh, isn't counting on going to hell. It, it's, uh, it's a very odd way to put it. They talk about these uh, death scenes in which saints were assisting, and you give signs of piety, but you also give signs of damnation at your death, and this seems like a, a sign ahead of time. These are the sorts of remarks that if it were made on your deathbed, you would, you would be horrified. But he's making them now while he's alive. Yeah, to be cavalier and joking about going to hell, uh, especially at his age, is a very bad sign. I mean, uh, anybody that, that has the Catholic faith and has even a little piety would not make a joke like that. Well, it's interesting you point out, and you've said it on more than one occasion, I agree with you, actually, that he, he doesn't believe in hell. He's documented why he doesn't believe in hell. He believes in this annihilation. But then he refers to judgment. In an address in April, he, he said, we will be judged for our relation with the poor. However, if today I ignore the poor, I leave them to one side, I believe they aren't there, then the Lord will ignore me on judgment day. When Jesus says, the poor you have always with you, he means, I will always be with you in the poor. I'll be present there. And this isn't to be a communist. This is the center of the gospel. We will be judged on this. What, how, how will we be judged if there's no hell? Well, I think the idea is whether you'll get exterminated or not. <laughs> okay. You see, I think that's the idea. So it's not to part for me, you know, go to the fires that have been prepared, have been prepared for the devil from all eternity or whatever our Lord, you know, the, the exact quote, I can't remember. But our Lord consigns the damned to fire in hell in the gospel, which he seems to overlook. Uh, so I guess it's the extermination route. You see that you'll, if, you, if you didn't uh, help the poor, uh, then you get exterminated. 
And, you know, again, it's making the gospel into a purely social gospel. It is good, obviously, to help the poor. It's certainly uh, something that will come up at our judgment. All of the spiritual and corporal works of mercy will be, will be uh, reviewed. But you must help the poor for God's sake. So you could give all of your money, you could give billions of dollars to, to the poor, but if it's for purely naturalistic and humanitarian reasons, it's not worth a single penny in the order of salvation. It has to be done for a supernatural motive. He seems to anticipate the objection by saying, and this isn't to be a communist. <laughs> right, well, he, as Shakespeare said, he doth protest too much. He is a communist, and the gospel is at the service of communism, which you know, is, has been true in Latin America for decades. And uh, so this is the only part of the gospel he believes, apparently. The, the thou, thou shalt not commit adultery, you know, sort of went under the rug. And, you know, that if you marry someone uh, who has been put away, you commit adultery, which our Lord said, that's in the gospel. That also, you know, doesn't count here. And so it's, it's uh, he's obsessed with helping the poor, but in a purely naturalistic sense. He's a communist, uh, and they wave that flag constantly, the poor, the poor, and they don't help the poor. The poor languish in poverty un under communist regimes, and there is a, an elite that flourishes. And I think I said in a, a recent uh, interview with you, do you see how fat Maduro is <laughs> and how yes. fat his, all Pretty of his shelf. army people are? You look at the, you know, they're always with him, you know, they're all fat. And meanwhile, the poor are, are you know, either leaving Venezuela or looking for food, you know, and some other, you know, like almost like animals, you know. So, and remember how fat Khrushchev was and Brezhnev was fat, 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 you know, the, uh, uh, and uh, Gorbachev was fat. These people are eating well. And meanwhile, there's bread lines in Russia. Mm. And by the way, uh, Bernie says that's good that there were bread lines because it shows that there was food. Don't know if it'll be there when I get to the front of the line, but right, we'll see. Right. In the same sense, again, going back to Bergoglio's interpretation on the gospel, and I think he's used this phrase before another way. I think we've actually dealt with it in a previous Francis Watch recently, but he, he says, God only proposes, he never imposes. As we know how to distinguish one language from another, we can also distinguish the voice of God and the voice of the evil one. God's voice never obliges. God proposes, he doesn't impose. Instead, the evil voice seduces, assails, constrains. It arouses dazzling illusions, tempting but passing emotions. At the beginning, it flatters, it makes us believe that we are omnipotent, but then it leaves us empty inside and accuses us, you are worthless. Instead, God's voice corrects us with so much patience, but always encourages us, consoles us, always nourishes hope. Is this true, Excellency? Can we say that God's voice never obliges? God proposes, he doesn't impose? What about the Ten Commandments? What about the destruction of the golden calf by Moses? And what about the slaying of uh, the, what is it, 20-some thousand at the command of God for those who worship the golden calf? That sounds like an imposition to me. <laughs> it does sound pretty imposing. Could you see the bloodbath after that? <laughs> 20-some thousand people slain by a sword? That sounds pretty imposing. 
and the other threats of hell in the Holy Gospel. I mean, uh, not that you know the God of the Old Testament is any different from the God of the New Testament, but in the Gospel itself, there, there are threats of hell, and in St. Paul there are threats of hell. They will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So this plenty, uh, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know? uh, those who do not believe shall be condemned. That's what he said uh, before ascending into heaven. Uh, that's imposing. You know, so, I mean, this man doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not a Catholic, all right? So you have to understand that this man is, you know, is some other religion. So you have to uh, understand that when you read this stuff. So he proposes one way that uh, proposes that God doesn't impose. And the other way, he proposes a way of, of prayer, and, and he says that getting angry is a, a way of prayer. We aren't afraid to argue with God. I will say something that even seems a heresy. <laughs> Many times I've heard people say to me, you know, this happened to me and I got angry with God. You had the courage to get angry with God? Yes, I got angry. But this is a form of prayer because only a child is capable of getting angry with his father and then meet him again. We learn from Abraham to pray with faith, to dialogue, to argue, but always ready to receive the word of God and put it into practice. We learn to talk with God as a child with his father, to listen to him, respond, argue, but transparently, as a child with his father, Abraham teaches us to pray thus. So we've learned from Abraham that we need to get angry with God as a form of prayer, Your Excellency. Well, I don't know where in Abraham, Abraham, you might say, dialogued with God and he, you know, questioned, you know, but he didn't get angry. There's no history of, of somebody getting angry with God and considering that a virtue. Now, some people, you know, Yes, people who uh, sometimes don't get what they want when they pray get angry with God, but that, that, is, that is a sin, because when you pray to God for something, you're really praying that you know his will. It, you know, you're not going to change God's mind. You're praying that you know his will and that you conform to his will, whatever it should be. And so the, how is that compatible with getting angry with God? Anger is an emotion whereby we push off something that is evil. In other words, we, have a, we, ha, we have gotten an evil and we want to uh, respond to it. We want to, to, in some way, get it away from us. So if somebody punches us in the face, there is a feeling of anger that we want to punch them back to right the wrong. You see? That's anger, and it could be justified or not justified. So your the cause of your anger could be justified. Somebody does an injustice to you, and and there's a there's a legitimate anger, or it could be unjustified because the there is no true injustice, and the problem is you that you think it's an injustice because you're not getting your way. And he you know makes the example of a child who gets angry with his parent. Why does a child get angry with his parent? Because the child wants his own way. He wants candy. He wants dessert. He wants to scream and yell. He wants to run around like a, like a little animal. And the parent imposes upon him the rule. And then the child gets angry. That's, that's why children get angry. And that's an unjustified anger. So what he's talking about is basically sin. That he sins a lot. Getting angry with God because he doesn't get his way. So the anger is, is something that pushes off an evil. God can never wish for us a true evil. 
in the sense that a true evil, that is, uh, he might want us to have a physical evil or you know, a disease or something like that for some better reason, in other words, for, for our own purification, our own spiritual life, you see. But uh, as a loving father, he's not going to wish evil upon us per se or in itself just to... Uh, we are punished, it is true, but punishment of, of a, an unruly child is not an evil. It is actually a good thing. It's a sign of the love of the parent. So, the, so God does the same with us, but because we are attached to our own wills, we could get angry with God that he did not do what he was supposed to do. So occasionally, I mean, I, I heard of, you know, like especially among Italians, they would might pray to St. Joseph or St. Anthony, and if they don't get what they want, they turn him around, they, they turn his back, you know, see the, his statues, you know, and, and so they, that's bad. That's, that's not good. But typically Italian, you're, you know, you're Italian, quite dramatic. Forget. You know, <laughs> yes, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll push him, you know, push him face toward the wall because he didn't give us what we wanted. That is not good piety. That's bad. Well, you mentioned the idea of where in Scripture does Abraham get mad with our Lord, and I, I, as you say, I don't think there's actually a case. But I, I was interested. You were talking about the idea of conforming your will to our Lord's will and and not not getting angry if you don't get what you want. I was thinking that where Abraham was being, let's say, childlike, if we take the very best of Bergoglio's message here, this idea of being childlike with God in prayer, I thought of him bargaining for Sodom. You know, bargaining our Lord down from, if I can get this many just men. And of course, it turns out there's not even 10 just men uh, in Sodom. But but he does manage to, you could say, bargain with our Lord. And I thought that was an interesting response because, yes, it's on the other side of conforming your will to our Lord and just saying whatever it is that you want, Lord. But in this sense, Abraham, like a child, is asking for something that initially it seems that our Lord didn't want to give. Yes. when we pray. For something, we are fulfilling God's will that we ask for it, because otherwise He will not give it unless we ask. That in some some things He gives us with, without our asking, most things He does, but some things He wants us to pray for, and He will not give it unless we pray for it. So you are fulfilling that will of God. The same is true of uh, Moses when Moses went and pleaded with God not to destroy the people. God said to him, leave me alone. You see, and you know, everything that God does is to teach a lesson. And these things are recorded for a lesson. The idea being that if you pray, you're, you will, quote unquote, move me, you see, to mercy. You are not really moving God. What we are doing is fulfilling what he wants us to do. And that shows the power of intercession of Moses. That's why he said, leave me alone. Uh, you know, let me do what I want, essentially. And the same was true of Abraham. It's the power of prayer. It's the same as Our Lady with uh, the wedding feast of Cana. You know, it's not my time right now. And she didn't say anything except, <laughs> I always say this, a few seconds there where something happened that we don't know about because she turns around and tells them to fill up the pots. <laughs> yes, you know. Do, well, he says she says do whatever he tells you, and he tells them to fill up the pots. Now, what happened between this is not my time and filling up the pots? <laughs> All I can think is that she gave him a look that is not recorded, 
that somehow melted his sacred heart. And, and <laughs> but again, that's recorded and shown for to show the power of intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And that that whole thing was foreseen by God from all eternity. His answer to her, her whatever she said to him or <laughs> whatever else she did, moved him, quote unquote, to do that. You see, so. You know, there were so many things that happened in both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are not recorded, but these things are recorded for our edification. So we have to it's always remember that. It's interesting you bring up the, the wedding feast. I was, I was reading a, a book recently, and it, it reminded me, well, the book, the book pointed out that those are our last words of Our Lady in Scripture. Yes. Do and whatever what he tells power, you to do. What a powerful last set yes. of words that is yes that that's ultimately our ladies everything's encapsulated in that in that phrase right she's not just speaking to the stewards obviously she's speaking to us as well there's also lazarus a uh, word was sent by uh, martha and saint mary magdalene to our lord who was way out in the desert that lazarus is dying and the idea was you should come you know, this is at the end of his life. This was just before Holy Week. You should come. And uh, so he didn't go. And then when he gets there, he gets this little rebuke from Martha, a little, a little comment. If you had been here, he would not have died. <laughs> I suppose it's a, re a rephrase like, I wish you'd come a little sooner, <laughs> right, my lord. <laughs> right. You know, so it was an act of faith. You know, if you had been here, he would not have died. But there was it's a little... <laughs> Why didn't you come? And uh, yeah, he weeps, but he did that purposely in order to let he let Lazarus die and let him sit in the tomb for three or four days, whatever I think it was four days, in order to make that spectacular miracle, the greatest of all of his miracles, in front of a big crowd from Jerusalem, as the ultimate statement of his divinity. Lazarus, come forth prefiguring his own resurrection, which would happen in about two weeks or less than two weeks. And, you know, people were stunned by that. And, you know, they, they went back to Jerusalem and said he raised somebody from the dead and he walked out of the tomb. And, were, you know, so that was done for a purpose. So, so Martha's prayer was refused for a greater purpose of God. I'm laughing here actually because I, I was thinking you, you mentioned how spectacular it was and, I, and I'm setting it in our modern age and we know that right after the fact checkers would have said well as we know Lazarus wasn't actually dead <laughs> right. you know we'd have all of the the tweets would have said well you know it just seemed that he was dead and uh well he was stinking that's what it says in the, in the <laughs> right. gospel he was stinking and you know if you're not embalmed after four days you're going to be black uh, from corruption and also, you're going to stink like crazy. Especially if you're in the desert. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it, you know, you're not going to look good. And uh, people go pretty fast, you know, when they die, that corruption sets in pretty fast. And uh, so that's why the four days went by, precisely that reason. You know, this man is as dead as a doornail, as, as we say, and, that, and he was wrapped up, you see, and he came out. Uh, of the tomb, even though he was wrapped up. All those details, and it, it shows the eyewitness testimony of St. John, those little, little details. And this is not, you couldn't make that up. So, uh, you know, and the weeping of St. Mary Magdalene at his feet and everything, I mean, just, uh, and, you know, the, the groaning of our Lord, I mean, the, these small details 
and the buildup. I mean, it's 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 vivid. You can just live it when you read that gospel of the raising of Lazarus. So, in any case, that that's another case of denying us for a greater good. One of the other spiritual aspects, uh, quote unquote, for Francis is the earth. We saw this obviously with Laudato Si, and he he refers to this. The wounds inflicted on our Mother Earth are wounds that also bleed in us. We cannot remain silent before the outcry when we realize the very high cost of the destruction and exploitation of the ecosystem. We have the chance to reverse course, to commit ourselves to a better, healthier world, and to pass it on to future generations. Everything depends on us if we really want it. And then he refers to the earth reacting to this uh, failure. How does the earth react? There is a Spanish saying that is very clear. In this it says, God forgives always. We men forgive sometimes. The earth never forgives. The earth never forgives. If we have to spoil the earth, the response will be very bad. Well, I, I know that the sin against the Holy Spirit is the sin that cannot be forgiven, but I suppose this was missing as well. The sin against the earth will not be forgiven. Yeah, this is this is earth worship. It's another form of humanity worship. Uh, it's another way of preparing for the Antichrist. We have this uh, general global problem, and all humanity must hold hands and come together in uh, sacrificing in order to preserve the earth, and therefore you have to level all of the wealth of the world, and you have to have a UN that will dictate what tree can be cut down and you know what jet can take off and all all sorts of things like that. It's the same old garbage and and uh, it's just another uh, it's certainly it's true that the left is using this coronavirus for the same purposes whether coronavirus is a is a real threat or not. I don't know. I was looking at some figures yesterday that the death rate in this country is 14 tenths of a percent of the total population. So if you put the number of deaths over 321 million people, you come out with 0.0004, right? And that's lower than Europe. The death rate, you know, the OEC, oh, oh, so many deaths in the United States. Well, there's 321 million people that live in this country. You know, that's practically all Europe put together. And it's also with the liberal rubric that Dr. Binks confirmed, which is people dying with coronavirus, not necessarily right. of coronavirus. Yes. Yeah, so you don't even know if those, uh, I saw the, the actual death rate for those infected as 0.26%. And this was from objective sources. The death rate for ordinary virus is 0.1%. So it is, if for the sake of argument, say the figures are true, which they may not be, but it means that, yes, it's twice as deadly as an ordinary flu, but still it is affecting such a small part of the population that there is no proportion between this panic and shutting down the entire country in order to protect a small portion of the population. Also, if you look at the graphs, the death rate is down dramatically from March, April, so now, I mean, it just shoots down on the graph. So, I mean, there's really uh, probably those who were vulnerable to it and would have died from it have already died. You know, the very elderly, the obese, the diabetic, the people who are more vulnerable. 
So, I mean, that's just, this is another thing, you know, the climate control. I think, you know, this is just opinion. This is not gospel. But I think that because climate change flopped as a global crisis, I mean, really nobody was paying attention to it. I, I suspect that uh, this coronavirus thing was, was cooked up in order to create a global virus. That's not something I would normally hear from you, Your Excellency. I know you're not big onto conspiracies, but that sounds I like... I suspect it. <laughs> okay, I'm not axe-grinding it. I just highly suspect it because they need these international crises. And just yesterday, the, some creature in the UN, I forget his name, I think the, you know, the, the, the whatever, the Pope of the UN, the, the, uh, he said, you know, we have to have more international government and so forth, you know, a whole speech, a you whole know, little message about the necessity for uh, a supranational borderless government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to deal with these pandemics and whatnot and so forth. So when you see that stuff, the red flags, literally red flags, go up right away. You know, so I, I highly suspect because the numbers are not there. It's not the bubonic plague which wiped out half of Europe and where there were bodies strewn on the side of the road with no one to bury them and where the farms were not cultivated because there was no one to cultivate them. This, uh, this was in England, uh, throughout Europe, but where there was a, a real uh, well, cutting the, the European population in half, 50% death rate versus four-tenths of a percent death rate. Okay, that, that's a plague, you know, but this, I, I just highly suspect, is a ploy. It's interesting you made that, that connection, because I just realized that one of the great effects of COVID is I haven't had to see or hear of Greta during this whole time. Who's Greta? You know, St. Greta oh, that of the, thing, of, of the that climate thing from Sweden. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The girl who President Trump says is a very happy girl. (laughs) (laughs) Does she have teeth? Does she ever show? Does she ever smile? She looks like the grumpy cat. Well, CNN had brought her on a coronavirus panel. And people just mm-hmm. said, "So what? What are Greta's? <laughs> what are Greta's credentials? She has no credentials. How many PhDs does she have in that? <laughs> right. <laughs> so she's been repurposed in the for the new. So I think that gives uh, some credence to your to your theory, Your Excellency. Yeah. The last check mark here. So we've talked about climate change being a check mark. The usual strange discussion about prayer life. Strange comment about seeing someone in hell, and and then of course coronavirus, which continues to dominate world news. The last thing we get from Francis is a new title for Our Lady, late in June. The title, Comfort of Migrants, was added along with Mother of Mercy, Mother of Hope. Those are two traditional titles for Our Lady, added to the Litany of Loretto, but now Comfort of Migrants. I'm assuming that will not be added to the Litany at the <laughs> Seminary, Your Excellency. <laughs> oh, yeah. This, again, it's, it's social gospel. You know, my, migrants is another thing. We have to break down the borders. So build bridges, don't build walls, and migrants should be welcomed. And that's all a way to, to break down borders and to break down the European races, you know, because that's seen as those white races should be continuing as races, as nationalities, is really, really bad. And so you have to bring in people to Europe to you know, wipe all that out. 
That's the only reason for it. And uh, the same in this country and everything. This country is a little different because it has always been receiving various races. So, you know, the whole migrant thing is uh, you know, part of this utopia, this socialist utopia. It's, it's part of the whole agenda. So it's religion at the service of the communist socialist super republic. And again, a Novus Ordo title for something we already have. We have comfort of the afflicted for our ladies. Yes. This, this idea of yes. repurposing it as migrants. Right. Because a migrant could have a, a, you know, could have a lot of money. You could uh, be very rich. I mean, just because you're a migrant doesn't mean that you're, you're down and out. I mean, there were plenty of migrants on the Titanic. You know, they, <laughs> they, well, you know my grandfather was a migrant. He, he went actually in second class, not in the steerage, but he was in second class when coming over from Ireland. And he, he took his wife a few years later, wife and two kids a few months later also in the, the second class, which was more money. It was a considerable amount of money at that time. And uh, so, I mean, he had a little money. He was a migrant, though. He had to go to Ellis Island. I, I saw his, his uh, entry, you know, on the book of Ellis Island and also of his wife a few months later. And, uh, you know, it, because you're a migrant doesn't necessarily mean you're in straits. It simply means you're moving. That's all. You're a migrant. You know? So, I mean, to say the, the you know, comfort of the migrants it should be, you know, comfort of communists or, or you know, comfort of socialists to, to really, uh, you know. I think you're right, Your Excellency. Moving on to commentary on Bergoglio, really the big story for this episode is Vigano and, and Schneider. And I want to direct our listeners, I would hope if you haven't read it, that you would read it. There are two posts, one on His Excellency's blog, that's inveritateblog.com. And that's a, a long read. The title of the article is On the Recent Statements of Bishop Schneider and Archbishop Vigano. And then Novus Ordo Watch also has a, a long article called Vigano Condemns the Vatican to Religion. And I just wanted to read some of these bullet points here, actually, because as you read through them, so Novus Ordo Watch had compiled them, and it's somewhat unbelievable. In Vigano's commentary, some of the principles taught by Vatican II are erroneous. The hermeneutic of continuity is a sham. The Assisi interfaith meetings and Francis's Abu Dhabi declaration are rooted in the Second Vatican Council. The 1786 Synod of Pistoia condemned by Pope Pius VI anticipated the errors of Vatican II. Almost all of us have been deceived by Vatican II. Vatican II's subsistite in ecclesiology denies the identity of the Catholic Church with the Church founded by Christ and is the doctrinal foundation for ecumenism and ultimately the end of no salvation outside the Church. The root cause of all the errors of the present day is Vatican II. Is that Bishop Sanborn? I know. I just, I just applauded every, every paragraph that I read. Yes, yes, yes. Vatican II marked the beginning of a new parallel church. New theological language since Vatican II shows desire to detach from substance of Catholicism. We are in a situation of the most serious apostasy. Vatican II is the only council in church history that needs so much interpretation and that does not conform to the prior magisterium. And so I think for me, what was interesting in reading your commentary was you, you, you said this was a breath of fresh air. Yes, there was not a single thing in it that I disagreed with. And that's amazing for a Novus Ordo hierarch that he could write something not only that I didn't disagree with, but I said, I could not write this better. I mean, he, I never saw, either from Archbishop Lefebvre or any other traditionalist cleric, 
such a succinct description of Vatican II and what was wrong with it in the post-Vatican II era. It was just a perfect document. He, Where does this guy come from, Your Excellency? <laughs> no. I have to think that he's been reading some of the things that I and others say. I mean, all you know, the whole traditional movement. He's, he's got to have been reading that. But it is, I can tell that he's given a lot of thought to this. And he also knows his Catholic doctrine. The fact that he trashed hermeneutic of continuity, bravo, because that doesn't make any sense in Catholic doctrine. He also trashed the correction theory that we can correct councils and you know, councils go off the rails and we have to sort of put the train back on the rails later on. That destroys the very notion of magisterium and the assistance of the Holy Ghost and the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Those, that was so shocking to me. I, I just couldn't believe that I was reading it from a Novus Ordo prelate. This is someone who says the Novus Ordo Mass every day, ostensibly. Yes, apparently, but I, I would like to you know, be a fly in the wall where he says Mass. Because uh, I don't even know where he is. He's retired, obviously, or someplace. He's not functioning. He's, in an, he's in an undisclosed location is, is where he yes, is. Yes, yes. I don't blame him for the, after this, you know, but I don't see how he could possibly say the no mass after having said all of this. And what he doesn't say is where the parallel church is and where the real church is. That's a big question mark at the end of this. Which church does he belong to? How do you identify the, the parallel church versus the, the, the true church? I think you allude to this in your article. And again, I, I encourage our listeners to read it because we can't talk about His Excellency's entire article in, in, in Francis Watch. But would you agree, see, he is intellectually prepared for Sedevacantism? Yes, I said his compass is pointing that way. As if you block the, the, the two outs of Vatican II, the two ways to solve Vatican II, as an erroneous council, is to say hermeneutic of continuity, that, well, we'll put, uh, you know, uh, traditional lipstick on the pig, and uh, we'll, we'll fix it up, and this is what it really meant, and, you know, to interpret religious liberty as, uh, well, we're, uh, it means that you're not allowed to put a gun to someone's head in order to convert them. Of course that's true, but that's not what the council said. You see, that's known as spin interpretation. It's like what the Supreme Court did with regard to the uh, 1964 civil rights, that they intended, you know, to give civil rights to transgenders and to homosexuals in 1964. That is so stupid. Everybody in 1964, if you were transgender in 1964, you made it into the newspapers. And I remember that, that somebody had an operation in Sweden and it became a woman. And I remember my parents talking about it, like, oh, this is really crazy. And, you know, isn't that a scandal? Everybody felt that way. You were a kook. So to say that Congress in 1964 intended that, well, you know what I call them, the, the bird-brained boobs from beyond the ballot box. If for yes. them to say that, that, that is, with the exception of Clarence Thomas, it is just insanity. So... To say that Vatican II really didn't mean any error, you know, whenever it said, you know, that, that non-Catholic religions are means of salvation, well, that, you know, you can put a, you know, a sauce on that, it's okay. So he has blocked that out, that gate whereby to save Vatican II. Then he's also blocked the, the newer thing, which is the correction theory of Burke and Schneider. 
that if someone you know sends a, a correction letter to the Pope or whatever else is airing, that that's okay. See, everything is settled now because we've corrected it and we're okay now. He blasted that by saying, you know, Schneider is just wrong about this because then you could annul everything. You could you could correct anything you wanted. I mean, uh, you know, Quantacura, and you actually mentioned that. You know, so with those two, you know, then you have sitting like a big, really smelly elephant in the room. I mean, one that is, is say, you know, having gastrointestinal problems and messing up the whole room is Vatican II. You have this erroneous general ecumenical council approved and promulgated by the Pope and by all of the bishops of the world sitting in the middle of the room. What do you do with that? Now, later on, I think a few days later, he said Vatican II needs to be annulled, and the Pope has the power to do it. And again, it's lifted straight from the There's this Bishop Sanborn script. Yes. However, because Paul VI promulgated that on December 8th, 1965, if you annul Vatican II, Paul VI has to go too. He's got to go too, because Catholicism will not tolerate a reigning Roman pontiff promulgating a false council. And I'm sure he realized, if he's gone this far, I think he realizes that. And so maybe this is a trial balloon because he couldn't come out all the way at once, right? Because obviously, right. instead of a contest, is the worst thing ever. Yes. So Worse than coronavirus. And see, and, and I think that's what's fascinating about this. Again, you can't unsay this. So once Vigano has said this, he has put this possibility into people's minds, right? So before, before Trump, there was no discussion of a Muslim ban. So now Trump says there's a Muslim ban. People are actually talking about the possibility of a Muslim ban, right? He's yes. moved the Overton window over. So same thing here. Viganò has moved the Overton window to discuss the annulment of Vatican II. What universe am I in? It's yes. not just yes. COVID. Yes. I have this Viganò coming out of nowhere to to condemn this. So I don't want to be presumptuous, Your Excellency, but if Archbishop Viganò is listening to this broadcast, might he be welcome to stop by Brooksville to to have a chat with you? Absolutely. I will open my best bottle of wine and sit I would give anything to have an hour to talk to him. I would give anything to have an hour to talk with him because everything he's saying, as I said, I mean his his compass is pointing towards state vacantism. The only logical conclusion, if that council is null, Paul VI must also be null. For whatever reason, we might not even know the reason. In other words, he might, it's just, it's proof positive that there was something wrong with him and that he was not a true pope at the time. It's proof positive. Yeah, he's gotten a lot of the conservative disorders very upset. Uh, there's some some tweets I saw that he's mentally ill, or people need to pray for him. <laughs> Anyone who wrote that is not mentally ill. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, he's as sharp as a tack. That that well, the, he's he's now presenting this different voice because I think over the last year, maybe the last two years, even Schneider has represented the establishment voice of the SSPX. So he's in conformity with the SSPX line, and he's trying to find ways to explain away the SSPX position. And so the correction theory, as you allude to, that would be one way to explain the SSPX theory. And Vigano smashes it. So where is Vigano standing? He's certainly not standing with the recognize and resist crowd, but no one can say that he's a, he's a follower of Francis. 
No, he called them Bergoglio, I think, in that document. So. <laughs> I mean, if you referred in 19, the 1950s to Pius XII <laughs> as Pacelli, you know, <laughs> Pacelli said this and Pacelli said that. <laughs> Terrible. I, I, you know, that was a little detail that I noticed. But he might be only a sede with regard to Bergoglio. He may not see the necessity of holding that position with regard to the whole revolution of Vatican II. I mean, he gets this bigger picture, though, Your Excellency. I mean, and you, you quote this. What the world wants at the instigation of masonry and its infernal tentacles is to create a universal religion that is humanitarian and ecumenical from which the jealous God whom we adore is banished. And if this is what the world wants, any step in the same direction by the church is an unfortunate choice which will turn against those who believe that they can jeer at God. The hopes of the Tower of Babel cannot be brought back to life by a globalist plan that has as its goal the cancellation of the Catholic Church. In order to replace it with a confederation of idolaters and heretics, united by environmentalism and universal brotherhood, there can be no brotherhood except in Christ and only in Christ, qui non est mecum contra me est. We are saying a lot of positive things about Vigano, but he did also write a letter to Trump that would not, let's say, have been a letter that Bishop Sanborn would have written. It wasn't entirely clear on religious liberty, and he said that the, the deep state people were the children of darkness and that people broadly who were opposed to the deep state are the children of light. So it seems politically he, he's, he's not necessarily putting forth Catholic doctrine, but on this document he is. Yes, yes. Uh, I think he sees that there is a, a dark movement to organize the world uh, along the lines of the Antichrist, and to prepare the world for the Antichrist. I think he sees that. And then he sees an anti-Antichrist movement, too. And I think you know, stretching children of darkness and children of light, he you know, made that analogy. You know, whether he sees it in the same way that our Lord meant it, I tend to doubt. But I think he was uh, stretching an analogy there, that there's, there are forces, positive forces and negative forces, and that, uh, that you know, they, they can be seen you know, as, as analogical to what our Lord said. I wouldn't make that analogy necessarily, but I, I, I see what he's saying. You know, that's all I could say. Because then he uses it to pivot into the deep church, and he keeps mentioning masonry. Your I can't imagine someone investigating masonry, really, and not looking at Vatican II and say that there's no relationship. So in the letter to the president, he says, Although it may seem disconcerting, the opposing alignments I have described are also found in religious circles. There are faithful shepherds who care for the flock of Christ, but there are also mercenary infidels who seek to scatter the flock and hand the sheep over to be devoured by ravenous wolves. It is not surprising that these mercenaries are allies of the children of darkness and hate the children of light. Just as there is a deep state, there is also a deep church that betrays its duties and forswears its proper commitments before God. Thus, the invisible enemy whom good rulers fight against in public affairs is also fought against by good shepherds in the ecclesiastical sphere. It is a spiritual battle about which I spoke about recently. Obviously, within the Novus Ordo sect, I get the analogy of the deep church, but in normal times, Your Excellency, could we refer to a deep church? Again, uh, I, I think he's using an analogy. Uh, I think that he means that there is a, a group, uh, a dark group, that is uh, active behind the scenes in the Novus Ordo religion. And uh, that these people were very instrumental in getting Mr. B elected. 
uh, and uh, that they uh, are, are very much in control in that sense. I think that's true, if you want to call that deep church, whatever you want to call it, but I think what he's saying is true, is that the, the, that the government of the church, you might say, and I'm speaking broadly here, is in the hands of uh, a cabal. But you know where we go with that. You know, uh, he's not there yet. But uh, I think that's his message. I mean, you know, he's using a, an analogy. That's how I read him. But I mean, he's very clear in Catholic doctrine. So I mean, anything he says there, I think, should be seen in his in his deep knowledge of Catholic doctrine. You know, I, I think he's just making analogies from Catholic doctrine, and you may or may not agree with those analogies. But I, I, you know, I can I see what he's saying. Well, we've only been talking about one person in the dual papacy, Your Excellency. We've forgotten about the person who maintains the spiritual aspect of the papacy. And that, as all the resignationists would refer to, is the real Holy Father, Benedict XVI. And this is referring to this idea of the spiritual dimension of the papacy. Again, this comes from a Novus Ordo Watch story from May. Benedict then draws a comparison with the papacy. For such a retired bishop, he adds, does not any more actively have an episcopal seat, but still finds himself in a special relationship of a former bishop to his seat. This retired bishop, however, thereby does not become a second bishop of his diocese. Such a bishop had fully given up his office, yet the spiritual connection with his former seat was now being acknowledged, also as a legal quality. This new relationship with a seat is given as a reality, but lies outside of the concrete legal substance of the episcopal office. At the same time, adds the retired pope, the spiritual connection is being regarded as a reality. Thus, he continues, there are not two bishops, but one with a spiritual mandate, whose essence it is to serve his former diocese from within, from the Lord by being present and available in prayer. It is not conceivable why such a legal concept should not also be applied to the Bishop of Rome, Pope Benedict explicitly states, thus making it clear that according to his own ideas, he fully resigned his papal office while maintaining a spiritual dimension of his office. So that part has been outsourced to Benedict, while Francis is taking the active part of the papacy. What do you think of that theory, Your Excellency? Uh, it it's typical Ratzinger. You know, he says something, and you don't know what it means. I mean, there's no possible way to figure <laughs> out what it means. I mean, what, how does he fulfill a spiritual dimension by sitting and rotting in the Sancta Marta or wherever else he is? I mean, you never hear from him. You, you, he you know, occasionally comes out, you know, something like a... You know, uh, you know, it just some appearances. Well, he, he comes out to deny that he had anything to do with a book on clerical celibacy. Right, <laughs> right. that's right. Yes, uh, you know, he, he makes these these episodic uh, appearances. Otherwise, he's he's just you know a creature in the Santa Marta. You know, how, what is he? And he you know shows all signs of agreement with with Bergoglio. I mean, he didn't condemn uh, Amoris Laetitia. He doesn't condemn all of these heresies that spew forth from the mouth of Bergoglio. He says nothing against those things. He gives every impression of being on good terms with Bergoglio. Uh, what is he doing? You know, I mean, you know, it's just nonsensical. It makes no sense. It's, it's, uh, it used to be, before Vatican II, that there were the relationship between the bishop and the diocese was one of father to children. And that even if you became so ill or incapacitated as to not be able to run the diocese, you would still be the bishop until the day you died, 
and perhaps the vicar general had to do a lot. In other words, there was a, somebody running the diocese if, if the bishop was incapable, and there were auxiliaries. I mean, life went on. But you, that, that idea that you're the father, you're our father, and just as you would not retire your father and say, well, you're no longer our father, but... You can go to the nursing home. Yeah, you go to, and, you know, we'll, you know, if you have something to say, we'll, we'll take it into consideration. Yeah, there, there was a reverence, and this was true of pastors of churches, too. It was true of the Pope. Now, it is true that, that people live longer now, and they are demented longer. You know, so it used to be that people would pass away commonly <laughs> when they were 70. And, and uh, the, uh, but, you know, they are living longer. Uh, but uh, it's you remain the bishop, you remain the pope. If there's anything you couldn't do, somebody else did it for you and, and, and so forth. The, now it's, it's like this service, the Petrine ministry. See, so you're in a service and you're, you're providing, uh, you, know, uh, you know, like... Uh, like the janitor or something, you know, does a service, and and uh, then when your time is up, you're you're retired, and and then you become something else. Uh, the uh, and, you know, so they're trying to define this something else. But I mean, he doesn't do anything, you know, except you know, deny his is this or 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 approve something Bergoglio said or what does he do? Well, recently he went to Germany. Yeah, you're actually in the the conspiracy theories blew up. I know, I know. I have to say, you were one who maintained that he couldn't leave for legal reasons, and I thought that that was quite quite understandable. But it means that he he did. It wasn't a long visit. He didn't give the authorities any time to to let's say get a hold of him. So I I don't think that necessarily disproves your your idea. But also, there know, may have been some previous agreement. The conspiracy theories were wild that he uh, he was driven from the Vatican, placed under exile, and and then he comes back a few days later, and then his brother dies. Yeah, which which just shows you, well, that's what he did. He went to go see his sick brother. Yeah. No, I think I think he was totally. Uh, I think he saw himself as too old for the job and uh, too weak to uh, to continue. Uh, I think he saw himself also as too intellectual for it. Something like Celestine. You know, I mean, apart from everything else, I just think he saw himself as not the man for the job. And also, I think there was pressure from, because Bergoglio was supposed to have passed at his election. It was supposed to have been, uh, and I think there was pressure from the dark state, or the dark church, or the, the, the deep church. The deep church. Daniels and other, other creatures like that, the, uh, that they, they wanted somebody. And uh, that, you know, because imagine Benedict would have lasted until now. <laughs> and so I think they were impatient for this. And I think that was a factor in it that, hey, you're, you're, you're too weak. You can't make these appearances, these international appearances. And I think you're right. He, I don't think he would have lasted till now if he'd been continuing on with the expectations. You have to travel around. You have to do these World Youth Days. You've got to pray to the great thumb at a CC. I mean, those things that take a lot out of you. I think praying to the great thumb probably takes a lot out of you, but the opportunity to revisit some of Ratzinger's quotes came because there's recently a, a mega biography came, that came out from Peter Seewald. And I, I just picked three quotes out your excellency, because I thought it would be a good opportunity. We've done a, a series of episodes on Ratzinger when Bergoglio was elected, you and I, we did a, 
uh, if you want to go back at Nova Sword to watch us sponsor these episodes, listeners. But we did a two-part series on the legacy of Benedict the Sixteenth, and one at least one of these quotes I think came up during those episodes. First is from him himself. Ratzinger says, "I had difficulties in penetrating the thought of Thomas Aquinas, whose crystal clear logic seemed to me to be too closed in on itself, too impersonal and ready-made." This may also have had to do something with the fact that Arnold Wilson, the philosopher who taught us Thomas, presented us with a rigid, neo-scholastic Thomism that was simply too far afield from my own questions. So that's the problem. The crystal clear logic is too closed in on itself. What, what do you think of that, Your Excellency? Well, Ratzinger is a modernist, and a modernist detests crystal clear logic. It, their, their theology comes from the deep interior, what you feel. You see, so crystal clear logic comes from the head, you know, and, and indicates what is true, what is false. I mean, anyone who would criticize crystal clear logic must be insane. I mean, that's how you think. You know, that, that's, that's how we, we, every day, everybody uses logic to think. So if he's saying it's crystal clear logic, well, how could you deny the truth of it then if it's crystal clear logic? When he uses the term rigid neo-scholastic Thomism, like the like this is from Garrigou Lagrange, right? This is yes, yes, that's standard modernist uh, hogwash and standard modernist language. That uh, theology like that is is not relevant. I remember it from the '60s. It's not relevant. You know, we have. You have to live theology, you know, and that's textbook theology, the manuals, and, uh, you know. The... So here's another quote. There can be no return to the syllabus, which may have marked the first stage in the confrontation with liberalism and a newly conceived Marxism, but cannot be the last stage. In the long run, neither embrace nor ghetto can solve for Christians the problem of the modern world. The fact is, as Hans Urs von Balthasar pointed out oh, as early please. as 1952, He's that the demolition of the bastions is a long overdue task. Right. He signals his intent. Yes, to transform the church to fit the modern world. That's Vatican II. Ratzinger was one of the authors of Vatican II. The whole idea of transforming Catholicism to appeal to the modern world, that was the program of the modernists. And, you know, he's trying to put a, a moderation on it by saying, well, you know, we're not going to, uh, you know, uh, go too far with this. Well, you know, forget it. Yeah, we have to tear down the bastions. And that the popes, to their great credit, build, built walls, thick walls, against the modern world. Because the modern world was the enemy of the Catholic Church. It is ultimately the forces of the Antichrist. It is the gathering of the army of the Antichrist, and it has been in effect since the Renaissance, right? Uh, little by little, step by step, the French Revolution and, and the revolutions of the 19th century, and all of the thinking. We are living those things right now. I'm going to write an article in my next newsletter about it, how all of that is culminating now in everything we're seeing going on in the United States of America. And you know, all of those errors... So the popes understood that. It's, it's a fascinating question. So before I had met you, I, I don't think I'd really read anything other than one encyclical. I'd only read Murari Vos from Gregory XVI. And I think after learning what you thought of him, I continued to delve in a bit, a bit more. 
but he he didn't permit the railroads to be built in the papal states and and i i toss that over in my head because initially the the modern the liberal that's in all of us says what's what's wrong with the railroads you know that's a perfectly perfectly normal thing but i think again in the holistic universe in which gregory the 16th lives it's all connected yes right that that you you if you let in the railroads what what comes right behind the railroads newspapers the telegraph and free speech so I, I don't know if that was a sustainable long-term solution. Obviously, if we had popes now, they'd have to grapple with the question of the modern world. But it was a delaying tactic on Gregory XVI's part. And my initial response of why would he do that, as I've studied the question more, it seems to make sense. You know, that, I mean, you have to distinguish that from his, the, you know, his teaching. You know? I mean, uh, don't forget the railroad at that time. What, he, he died in 1846. So the railroad was, you know, something very novel. But he's he's displaying this Catholic attitude that we're not just going to jump on board with, right. with the modern world. I think that was the bigger picture for him is that that he saw the modern world and the industrial revolution, the early industrial revolution, as just going the wrong way. He also may not have wanted that railroad bringing in revolutionaries from the like, northern Italian states. Uh, to infect the papal states, that he uh, that there you know he may have wanted to keep them out, so that may have been a uh, just as yeah, Mazzini or Garibaldi would have hidden in a cargo car or something. We cannot fly to Europe right now. <laughs> we're we're excluded from Europe, you know. So in a certain sense, the same thing. I mean, it could have been that too. Is that the papal states could not control who comes in. Mm. And uh, so forth, you know that that uh, it could have been that, but you know I think it was more a gut reaction to the modern world. And uh, no, I mean it, it's and he didn't know what was coming. You know, there's a, a either you know the the development of various inventions and all that the 19th century would produce. You know, so do you think Ratzinger's characterization is fair here? Uh, he says ghetto essentially. And you talk about building walls. Would that have been a response? And would you see someone like Gregory the Sixteenth, if he were reigning gloriously now, would maintain this prisoner of the Vatican idea? Well, he was not prisoner of the Vatican then, right. but building the wall against the modern world is absolutely necessary for the survival of the Catholic Church. The modern world is pitted against the Catholic Church as an enemy in its thinking. In its uh, attitudes, its legislation, it is an enemy of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church will not survive if it conforms itself to the modern world, and we can see that. It, the Catholic Church is, a, as I said in my sermon on the on the Saint John the Baptist, a devastated Jerusalem, and we're sitting on the rubble of it and weeping. And Pius IX did that. Pius X did that. Leo XIII did it with regard to ideas, but he did not do it with regard to his diplomacy. He tried to reach out to the modern world diplomatically, even though he condemned all of its principles. Uh, the, but he had this diplomatic outreach, and he was elected for that because, uh, as a reaction against Pius IX. But then Pius X you know, outdid them all. And then after that, you, you know the rest of the story. As they say, you had moderates with regard to the modern world, in Benedict XV, Pius XI, Pius XII, moderates. And that moderation, unfortunately, gave uh, the ability for the modernists 
to rise in the church, and then you had John the Twenty Third in nineteen fifty eight, and and the rest is history. But I suppose our listeners will understand that this how far we are that Pius the Eleventh is a moderate, right? Compared to what we see today, the uh, modernism, you know, the moderate says modernism is bad, but the modernists are good people who just need to be given a little direction, and they'll be all right. <laughs> That's a moderate. From one of Ratzinger's professors, he said. You just talk and avoid precise definitions. Another one commented, Ratzinger favors a theology of emotion. He shies away from clear definitions. Seek et non, it is not thus or it is not thus. He never went by that medieval maxim. He does not love strict definitions, but wants to express things in a new way and puts that together as an artist puts together a painting. And in the end, one wonders, just what did he actually say? Uh, That's what I have always said when I read Ratzinger. What is this man saying? You know, he says all these words, (laughs) books upon books upon books. You read it. And, you know, I'm trained in theology. And what did he say? What is he getting at? And and it's always some obscure thing. And that's reading him in English. Imagine reading him in German. (laughs) I, I was told once that the Germans learn English in order to read Kant in such a way that they can understand it. Well, to, to wrap up our episode, you actually another another cognitive dissonance. The SSPX recently has been doing photo ops with diocesan bishops. And in one of their newsletters, they refer to the fact that one in five people in the world is Catholic, which means they're using the count, including the Novus Ordo, which begs the question, well, if one in five people are Catholic, what are you doing? Yes. Yes, of course. But it seems that there's something, some sort of movement happening. Of course, this is the perpetual story with them. But, you know, they're, they're very happy to be taking these photos with these diocesan bishops. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to get excited, you know, and I say excited. In other words, really take that seriously. For You know, they've been doing that sort of thing for ages. They've been talking. They've been, you know, as Father Chicada said, they've been getting discounts in the Vatican bookstore, and you know, as signs <laughs> uh, of a coming, you know, uh, you know, all sorts of things like that. You know, these little signs. You know, uh, who knows if it's anything that uh, is indicative of uh, future reconciliation or not? It could just be, you know, simple ecumenism or you know, being nice with your enemies or that. They're not even enemies. But, you know, in, in their hearts, the SSPX is a Novus Ordo organization. They have no intrinsic objections to going along with being a, a branch of the Novus Ordo, just like a Fraternity of St. Peter, uh, etc. They are there. You know, uh, I was recently told that in their school in England, they're teaching climate change. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, they're, they're, they're with it, you know. They're, they're, they are Unicum. I would say they in more ways than one. I mean, that's where Unicum wow. gets you. If you accept Bergoglio as Pope, all of the rest of the theology follows. You, you, you get Greta, too. You get Greta with him. And you have to be in Catholic theology. You cannot say that man is the Pope, but I am opposed to him. And I am against him. And he is against me. And I am outside of him. You must be with him in Catholic theology. Otherwise, you're, you're out in the cold. And that mentality seeps in and, and governs what they do. You know, so that they're having pictures taken with Novus Ordo Prelates doesn't, doesn't you know, phase me at all. They also have the ticking clock problem 
Now, Bishop Williamson said recently in a blog that he heard, and his information is usually pretty good, he heard that they are preparing a hospital room at a cone for Bishop Tissier. Yeah, I don't think Bishop Tissier is well. Yeah. I think I've heard that as well. You know, that's what he said. And he said, you know, it's on information, you know, so it's... Uh, they have to have an Episcopal consecration. You, it's an excellent point you, you make. <laughs> we were just saying that yesterday, Bishop Selway and I, that they have 600 priests. Bishop Selway just went out to California where he had 64 confirmations to do. <laughs> he said by the end of the conference is, you know, number 64, he was tired. And <laughs> he was saying, he said the slapping got a little harder. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so you know, we were commenting. He said, "You know, they ha- we have what you know. We don't even have ten priests in the RC. I don't think they- maybe so, but six hundred priests. That means they're generating all of these confirmations. They thousands, have sixteen thousand parishioners in St. Mary's, Kansas. Sixteen thousand. And two bishops for the entire world to do all of that and all of the other things bishops do. All those minor orders, the tonsures, the everything. That takes time. They have to go everywhere. I think you make a really interesting point, you're going to see. In the practical order, they're simply running out of runway. So if the SSPX changes nothing for the next 20 years, they're going to run out of bishops. Because as, as you've pointed to many times, after a certain age, there is a bullet with your name on it. Uh, <laughs> and Bishop Williamson already in his cohort, you could say, possesses more bishops than the SSPX. Yes, he, he possesses does. more bishops than the RCI and the IMBC that's, combined. That's right? right. Bishop Williamson's been a very busy bee. Yes. So he's consecrated three bishops. Yes. And I, I just think that's exhausting in, in its own, as you know from having oh, done the ceremony. And he's done it, He's done it... Right. He's done it three times there, and then I think he, he was also the consecrator for the Brazilian priests uh, when they wanted a bishop as well. So he's he's done the ceremony a few times, apparently. Yes, he has. Yes. And I think that's a really interesting point, that they are in need of an Episcopal consecration. And that has dawned on the movers and shakers there. And can they get away with another, do you have a mandate? Yes, and then they and then they read up some statement that Father Schmidberger wrote. Uh, that that maybe the thing is, I I feel that their faithful would accept that. I don't know that their faithful would would not accept a, another illegal quote unquote Episcopal consecration. They'll say Operation Survival Part Two. It's hard to say. I mean, I think their faithful are a little culty. You know, I, I think uh, for example, all of that stuff brought up by uh, Voris. Had absolutely no effect. Absolutely right. none. It, it just slipped off uh, the Teflon, like uh, as if it were in Teflon. It, it's just dead. Even though you know, it's they hardly even responded to it. I mean, the response was very weak. It wasn't the, you know, it was just this is yellow journalism, and you know, that, that was the end of it. Uh, they, I haven't seen a single thing since. And and he yep. defied them to sue him, so that they could uh, therefore have access to all of their people by deposition under oath. So, you know, uh, but it, it, it came to nothing. So I, uh, you know, I think that they would, most of them would follow whatever happened because they can always invoke that operation survival. 
see, they could say we've been talking and we've been talking and, and, you know, we've tried and tried, but we have to protect ourselves. And everybody would say, yeah, you have to protect. And after all, you know, we, uh, we have a right to survive despite the Pope. And, uh, you know, the, uh, I think they would go for that. And the excommunication is invalid because we have a right to survive. They'll, they'll invoke that at a certain point, but I think they prefer not to. But I think their people will be happy if they get approval from the Vatican to operate as a legitimate organization. I think so. They definitely would like to have some kind of approval. Yes, yes. Uh, so, uh, so they're ready to be absorbed into the parallel church. <laughs> well, who knows what the next Francis watch will hold for us, Jesse, but I know that you cannot tell me when I ask you what's going on at the seminary that nothing's been going on. Uh, you've had an ordination, and now you've recently had some minor orders given as well. Yes. Yes, we moved uh, a number of people forward, and, uh, and we're going to have uh, three tonsures in, uh, in um, the fall, because uh, some people are taking uh, extra courses here uh, during the summer. So we're moving them ahead uh, that way. And uh, so... As I speak, the classes are going on, and Father Fleece is teaching Hebrew for the first time. Wow. Yeah, he's got seven students for Hebrew, and uh, so he's actually teaching our French seminarian, Henri Chapeau de la Chanonie, in France over Zoom. He's teaching him Hebrew, and he's also teaching Hebrew to Father Duterte (laughs) in Quebec. So we've got it all figured out. That's a summer course, you know, like in case you had nothing to do this summer, you can take Hebrew, you know. (laughs) And and let's see what else. uh, You've got got a seminary move? We have a seminary move. As a matter of fact, we're going up to Pennsylvania next week for a meet and greet, which is a term that makes me kind of sick, but (laughs) that's what they call it. In order to meet the local people, you see, we need a variance in order to use that as a seminary because oh, the R1 zoning doesn't call for seminaries. So they told us you need a variance. A variance means that they have to overrule uh, the use permit, you know, that they have to say, well, you have a reason. And the biggest single factor in that is what the neighbors think. If the neighbors come in and say, no way, they will say no way. Which means that you, you would be dead in the water. Yes, we would have to look someplace else. We would have to do something else. So the idea is to meet them and show them that we're, you know, we don't have horns and tails and we're antennae or, you know, things like that. And just, uh, you know, just to, as Father Ricosa says, you cannot hate those who are present. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if you have conversations with them, as the initial reaction, the man who owns the place says the neighbors are favorable, even very favorable. Okay. Because, you know, how could you not be? It's, I said the most noise that they might hear is uh, if they're passing by on the sidewalk, they might hear some Gregorian chant going on. That's about the, the size of the, the noise that's going to come out of that building. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's uh, very quiet, you know, seminarians saying rosaries and whatnot, you know, it's not a lot of noise there. So is your regular academic year over now, Your Excellency? Yes, and you're it's in over, summer yes. yes. So your summer classes will be July and August? Yes, yes. They, they are intensive. In other words, they, they might have three hours a day of one course. Uh, so it's usually one course that is given. 
So some are taking uh, ontology, which is part of metaphysics, that's philosophy. And then also uh, another one is taking uh, logic. So they just had some holes in their previous formation, and, and we're filling in those holes, essentially. And, but they were ready for, to pass into theology, from philosophy to theology. And when you go from philosophy to theology, you can be tonsured. Mm. You see, when you're done with philosophy, you can be tonsured. And then uh, we're expecting five new ones at this stage. The five different countries, the U.S., Spain, Nigeria, Poland, and the United Kingdom. Uh, so it should be quite a mix. And um, the Spaniard is coming over to visit toward the end of the month. And uh, uh, he's from Malaga. And uh, he knows Frankie Logue. Do you know Frankie Logue? No. You don't know Frankie Logue? I, I said to somebody in England, somebody wrote to me, oh, yes, a young man in England asking about where he could go to Mass. And he, in the uh, course of the, uh, he said, uh, you know, if I become a state of a Cantist, I'll go to Mass in this certain place. And I said, well, if you have any questions, let me know. And he said, well, you know, I know Frankie Logue. He, he's a 17-year-old who lives in uh, the area of Birmingham, England. Okay, I think I know about him on Twitter. I don't yes. know him personally. And I, my comment back to him was, I think Frankie Logue, is in contact with the entire universe. <laughs> Everybody I talk, all these people, because the Spaniard is, you know, because uh, Frankie knows Spanish. <laughs> and uh, so he, he's been talking up this to this Spanish young man, you know, and so it's all frankly, Frankie Logue work, you know. And so I think he's been in contact with everybody, you know, outer space people on other planets and everything. <laughs> So that's Frankie Logue. He, he, I met him in England the last time I was there. Well, it's great to hear vocations coming, especially from England and, and from Europe and Africa. We just need to get the Australians to pick up the pace. Yes. Uh, York's yes. And they need to send someone, too. That's right. Because they've, already, they've already sent a nun over. Yes. Yes. She's here, and uh, she's in a habit now. And uh, I think she's doing very well. I got a letter from her. I, I'd written her, I think, uh, six six months ago, now it feels like. But it was she returned and said, I, I've been told that you sent a letter, but I can't read it until I professed. <laughs> so she'll she'll get to read my letter, I think, in, in another year and a half, two years. <laughs> but but I thought it's again, this is part of the religious life and it makes sense. You just forget these things sometime when you send a letter that when someone's a postulant, they don't have the same rights as uh, someone who's professed. Yes, yes. All those things were controlled uh, in the past. You know, the, the she's in a novitiate. Novitiate was very tightly controlled. It was sort of a very long retreat. When you're on retreat, you don't get mail. And right. It's like a very long retreat. And it's the most important part of their formation, actually, is their novitiate. Uh, the, the religious I've talked to over the years say that, that novitiate's this spiritual powerhouse that you go back to over and over as a reference point as you go forward in the religious life. So. I can see how a letter, even just the even the most pious letter, can can be a distraction. So, well, as I say, we look forward to have the Australians join the join the other seminarians and and send someone forward. Well, the UK fellow is actually from New Zealand. He's a Kiwi. Okay, he was born in Wellington, New Zealand. So we're close. But then he became <laughs> a UK citizen. So so we're so you got the best of both worlds. And then I would say the UK mission will want to have first dibs on on any on oh, any yes. UK clergy. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm supposed to go there in August, but you know there's no sign of let up right now. I am ticketed for Europe in August, but I, I don't think I can go. 
unless some miracle happens between now and, and August. Well, I'll ask our listeners to pray for that miracle. And as always, Your Excellency, we thank you for your time going through these particular errors. And this year's been moving so quickly. Perhaps the next Francis Watch will be discussing the fact that Vigano has come out as a set of a contest. I hope so. I, I really hope so. That would be a, a great, for a Novus Ordo prelate to do that, it would be a, just music to my ears. <laughs> As always, actually, thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.